Hi, and welcome to the A16Z podcast. I'm Amelia Salyers. Today's episode is a special one, since it's the 10th anniversary of Andreessen Horowitz, which was founded in late June 2009. So we decided to turn the tables by asking Stuart Butterfield, founder and CEO of Slack, to interview our founders, Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen. The three of them discuss the differences between founders in 2009 and today, the business model of VC and A16Z's history, and technology trends then, now, and into the future. And they also throw in a few good summer book and TV recommendations at the end. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Any investments or portfolio companies mentioned, referred to, or described in this podcast are not representative of all A16Z investments, and there can be no assurance that the investments will be profitable or that other investments made in the future will have similar characteristics or results. A list of investments made by A16Z is available at a16z.com investments. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. One question I want to ask is, like, has the nature of, of the entrepreneurs or the founders changed? So 2009, you have raised some money, you have some LPs, and now you're out there looking for ways to, to invest. Who are you meeting? Where are they coming from? And, and what are they like? Yeah, well, you know, I, I really feel like in retrospect, that class of 2009 entrepreneurs were some of the most special ones that we've met in the entire history of the company. And when we see that again, we always say like yourself, Todd McKinnon, Martin, Brian Chesky, you know, the thing all of you had in common is you had gone through something like just unbelievable to get to the position you were to start the company. You know, earned your stripes. Like everybody in 2009 seemed like they paid their dues, mm-hmm. like in a pretty serious way to get into position. And um, I think, you know, one of the great things that's happened over the last 10 years is it's just become easier to start a company. Um, but as a result, you don't have, you know, people who know exactly what it is and what that means and what they're about to face uh, and still want to do it, yeah. <laughs> which is... <laughs> You know, that that's a very special thing. That, that's an unusual person. And then I'd add two categories of entrepreneurs who have really risen in the last decade. Um, so one is, you know, we, Alex, our partner Alex kind of coined this term O to O, um, you know, kind of in B2B, B2C, and now O to O. And O to O is, is online to offline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this whole broad category. It's, you know, Airbnb and Lyft and, 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 and Uber and, you know, many of these Postmates and DoorDash and all these, it's sort of these companies that you have an online experience and then it culminates with something happening in the real world. And so those founders are much more, I would say, operationally focused maybe than the previous generation, right? Which is, it's not just software, but even beyond not just being software, you know, those companies have a big real world, you know, logistical infrastructure operations component. And so that has turned out to be a different kind of founder, um, which is really interesting. Uh, almost actually even a little bit of a throwback model. They're, they're, those people arguably are a little bit more like the semi- semiconductor founders from like 30 years ago. They're like, they're harder core. They're grouchier. They're dirt under the fingernails. Like, yeah, and they have to worry about more real world stuff. Yeah, and also, stuff yeah, can go yeah. wrong. You know, people can die. Like, you know, all kinds of, you know, yeah. you know it's all kinds of stuff can happen. So, so, so that's been a particularly interesting kind of uh, rise of a new kind of founder, which has been super interesting to work with those people. And then the, the other on the bio side is we've gotten more involved in bio and in healthcare. 
The other is the rise of the deep domain expert in a science like biology. So somebody might come, you know, biology PhD or chemistry PhD or something, um, where, you know, 10 years ago, if you met a newly minted bi biology PhD out of Stanford or MIT, they, they really wouldn't know that much about computers. It was kind of an afterthought. Um, and they wouldn't really know, you know, they know a little bit how to code, but not much. And now you meet a newly minted biology PhD out of Stanford. They basically have a dual PhD in computer science. Like they, they, they basically, they've been, you know, it's kind of the story. They've been programming since they were, they were little, little kids in most cases. And then and they kept current. And in fact, a lot of the research that they did to get their bio PhD often had to do with computer science and math and algorithms and machine learning, right? A lot of that, a lot of that stuff's happening now. Um, and so you've got these kind of dual discipline founders for the, for the deep science stuff. So dual discipline, biology CS, mechanical engineering CS, physics CS, chemistry CS. Um, and that's a real, like that, those, those people are like super enticing because those are, you know, it's like two superpowers, right? You know, he can, you know, he, he or she can fly and they're invulnerable, like is, is a really good combination. And so a lot of the companies we're seeing on the bio side and in the harder sciences is, is that kind of founder. And I think that's new. Yeah. Or like Satoshi, you know? Economics and Satoshi's a really computer good science. Actually, it's funny. There's actually a revolution happening, even apart from crypto, in, in the field of economics. There's a in the, in the in the actual academic field of economics. There's a revolution happening towards what's called empirical economics, quantitative economics, in which a lot of the new economists who are kind of forty and below are very focused on data and machine learning. And you know, the economists that are in their fifties and sixties were more inspired by physics, and they're they're much more into formulas, and they're they're much more abstract about what happens in the real world. And so, there are actually there are actually you know, there are companies increasingly driven by, started by, or you know, new invent new inventions being created by economists with a very strong CS background. That's true. That's true. So from the beginning, I'm not sure if this was intentional or not, but uh, certainly the positioning in mm -hmm. the press was this was different. Like we were going to blaze a new trail, kind of a different model. And right out of the gate, there was the investment in Skype, which mm -hmm. was not a thing that VCs normally did. How, how intentional is that? Yeah, a lot of it was intentional. So there, there was a big kind of throwback element to what we were doing, which was basically we wanted to work with the best founders to build the most important companies. And there, there's we could talk a lot about kind of the history of venture and the, the art and science of the whole thing. But there is a, a rich tra tradition there that we definitely drew from. And we, and we actually we spent a lot of we 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 to get Ben and I leading up to this uh, spent a lot of time really digging into the history of kind of where all this stuff comes from and, and kind of what made it work across various eras. And so so we were you know very inspired by a lot of the people who came before us. And then there were a bunch of new ideas. Um, and so, you know, maybe list a, several of the new ideas. And so one of the new ideas was just that we thought that a lot of the venture firms had lost their way in the sense that they had been started by founders. They'd been started by founders and operators who had built businesses. And so you would, you know, raise money from, you know, a, a firm um, and you would get, you know, somebody who'd been a CEO or general manager of an important business on your board and they could really help you figure things out. And then over the years, the, a lot of the venture firms just quote unquote professionalized and they ended up with a lot of GPs who didn't have that experience. And so they started to get, the, the advice started to get more abstract and, and maybe less helpful. So that was one difference. Another difference was, um, you know, we, we took seriously the, the, the idea of building the institution and then in particular around that building a network and an ecosystem and making a real long-term systematic and, and actually very costly investment in building a, you know, building a network. And that had to do with the fundamental staffing model of the firm. And then uh, that, you know, that's why we have all these operating functions. We have all these, all these, all these professionals here. Um, and then that rippled over even into things like compensation. Like we, we get paid very differently than most, than most VCs. And so that was a big difference. The Skype deal you alluded to, uh, we did start at the very beginning with the idea of being stage agnostic. And that was probably a pretty new idea at the time. Um, and the idea there basically was if the priority is to work with the best founders to help build the most important companies, it shouldn't matter that much what stage the company's at. I mean, I, ideally, you'd like to get, start working with people early, but like, you know, you make mistakes. And so you miss things. Um, and we were starting from scratch. And so there were a bunch of companies we thought were very impressive that we wanted to get involved in, you know, even though they, they already existed. Um, and so we kind of had this idea that there should be multiple entry points from an investment standpoint. And then there would be things that we could actually do to be able to help uh, and work with the entrepreneur. Um, and so we kind of put ourselves in business from the beginning to operate across all the stages. 
Um, you know, now that took time to get, I would say it took time for us to get good at all the stages and maybe we're still, we're still working on it, but that, that, that core fundamental idea, uh, was in there. You, you referenced looking back at history for some, uh, sort of context and thinking about the investment theses for us, 10 years doesn't seem like that long ago, but then we hire people who have like three or four years of work experience, which means that they were born even in college sometimes, um, 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. We experienced that a lot. So increasingly frequently. Yeah. But that's interesting because that was a very particular moment in in history that I have vivid memories of the 2008 crisis. Um, that and then like almost immediately after that, the idea that we were in a tech bubble. Yeah. And kind of the whiplashing back and forth. What was that like? Well, you know, it was interesting when we started, and we had uh, we of course had had been through the actual tech bubble, the two thousand. 2001 tech bubble. Yeah. The, you know, the, the 2008 crisis was a banking crisis, not a tech crisis. It was a debt crisis, not an equity crisis. So it was, it was very different in nature for startups. So a big advantage we had was it really did not bother us at all. Uh, and so walking in one, like everybody said, you can't possibly raise a fund in 2009. You can't raise a venture capital fund. So the only two new funds were raised that year, us and Kosla. Um, and, because we, you know, we didn't know any better. We're like, come on, like, this isn't bad. <laughs> this is like not bad at all. And then like the, the other thing that really helped us was the just grouchiness of a lot of the other VCs. I remember, well, I'll go unnamed venture capitalist because I remember it so well because I ran back to tell Mark, you know, he asked me, he's like, well, like, what are you interested in? And I was telling him about Okta and how like important it was going to be in a SaaS world and so forth. And he gave me like a 30 minute lecture that, SaaS was a bunch of BS. It was never going to happen that the only successful sales SaaS company was Salesforce. And that was ever going to be the only SaaS company was going to be Salesforce and all this stuff. And so it was just like that kind of, like everybody was just like pretty grouchy and like uh, crusty. And we were, you know, new. So we were excited to invest in all that stuff. So thinking back to that point, um, I don't remember the exact year that everyone started. Obviously, my company started in 2009. I think Airbnb was like maybe that same year, a year later. Yeah. Something's happened a couple of years earlier, like AWS came out in 2006, iPhone yeah. in, nominally in 2007, but really 2008. But a lot of those things hadn't actually picked up. So certainly my recollection is none of that was really visible at that time. Yep. But we were at this, in retrospect, what was an incredible inflection point. To what degree do you think that worked to your advantage? Because you hear you are starting to fund, people are skeptical, but meanwhile, there's these massive secular trends which were pretty much invisible to everyone at that time. I think the two things that are true. So one is the big secular trends do drive a lot of what happens in this industry. And so like it is it is absolutely the case in the last decade that mobile and cloud in particular like drove just giant growth and, and social yeah. social as well. So the, the, right, those three. And so they, you know, they, made, they made a lot of people look like geniuses, including a few actual geniuses. So that, that's also true. But I think it's also true what, what, what Ben mentioned is like super important underline, which is like people don't think these things are obvious in the beginning. Like they're only obvious after the fact. They really don't look that obvious in the beginning. And so you, like you mentioned, the iPhone came out. Like I remember the iPhone in 2009, it was like a cool gadget, but like it couldn't hold a phone call. <laughs> like that was the era in which like it wasn't even, it was, was it on 3G at that point? It, it was like a big- No, it wasn't. It was pre-3G. The original iPhone was actually pre-3G, right? It had like edge data connection and then the 3G iPhone was a big upgrade, but then you couldn't hold a phone call on the thing. And that was in the era when Steve was telling people that you were holding the phone wrong. Yeah. If, if, oh, if, right. if it was dropping yeah. phone calls, you need And they built that, that crazy room to prove it to the journalists. Yeah. And exactly. And then they, they shipped everybody the bumper, right? And so it's like, okay, to, to, to squint from that to like, okay, now it's the mobile boom of all time and we're going to be sitting here 10 years later and they're going to have, you know, whatever it is now, a billion 
and half of these things, you know, in the field. And, and it's going to be kind of the defining, you know, device and interface for a generation. Like that wasn't super obvious. And then cloud, you know, cloud, I just, you know, there, we, you know, there were lots and lots and lots of companies of that era that were incredibly powerful that were in this, you know, server business or networking business or storage business or software business where this whole cloud thing, like AWS, like it's, it's a toy, it's a gimmick, like it's never going to make any money. It, it is really interesting. There, there is a big leap that has to happen, even when they are the really big megatrends. Like it's not, well, I, had, I had this in the early, the internet, like a lot of people in the early 90s, a lot of people in the press, a lot of people in the uh, investment community. A well, lot the of entire, right, well, actually, you should tell the story about like when you went to raise money, you and Jim went to raise money from the, all the, the the magazines and the newspapers. Yeah, so we, we started Netscape in early 94 and we went out and pitched all the media companies to become customers, partners, investors, and every single big media company. And in fact, at that point, they said, no, no, the future is AOL because AOL pays us for our content. And on the internet, we have to spend money to put up our content. So that's never going to work. And of course, they all knew that normal people wouldn't use the internet if it didn't have Time Magazine on it, right? Because Time Magazine would obviously be the killer app for the internet. You know, so, well, and by the way, it's like a friend of mine says that this thing is happening. It's going to fundamentally change the world and people poo-poo it. Like that might actually be the logical response because there are many new things that come along where people claim it's going to change the world. And then most of those things don't change the world. And so maybe, you know, on average, the correct response is, no, this thing is stupid. And, and then maybe our lot in life as founders and VCs is to, you know, be the, be the, be the fringe element that, like, that, that, that bucks right. that. Right? <laughs> it was wrong 97% of the time. Right, right, exactly. And, and by the way, you know, we, we look dumb a lot of the time, except, you know, during the times we look, you know, really, really smart. And, and, you know, and the reality is we're probably neither, right? We're probably neither super dumb or super smart. We're probably just willing to take the risk at a time when other people aren't. So let's fast forward a couple of years, kind of like the, the mm-hmm. middle era. 2012, Facebook went public, but I think that... I don't remember what year this happened, but we started talking about unicorns and there was another round of this is a bubble. <laughs> what was that like? And what do you remember about the invest, like basically the partner meetings after I would leave the room yeah. and, and the debate was happening. How much did, is this too expensive factor into the conversations? Yeah. You know, we have in the entire time, and I can say we're totally consistent on this. And I think it's because of our history, never thought it was a bubble um, in our entire time doing the job. And I think a lot of it has to, look, prices of companies are always incorrect. Like always, always, always incorrect Mm -hmm. because they're valued on like future performance, which nobody knows what that is. So most people are optimistic. The prices go a little higher. Most people are pessimistic. At that time, the prices go a little lower. But to get to a bubble, everybody's got to be optimistic. And that's what happened kind of in the 99, 2000 era. And like in our whole time, we never saw anything close to that. Like they never went anywhere, anywhere like within an order of magnitude to what it did in 99, 2000 for the similar kinds of companies. And so we were always, no, there's no bubble. Like, what are you talking about? There's no bubble. But people want to believe there's a bubble so badly. I think 2011, I was in a debate with Steve Blank and The Economist, and I argued it wasn't a bubble and he argued it was. In 2011, tech bubble, right? And at the end of the debate, he called me and he said, Ben, like, I voted for you. You won. The Economist readers voted 78%, 22% for him. Because, <laughs> like, that's how much people wanted to believe we were in a bubble. So. And still do. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a, I'm not sure if it's quite a cognitive bias, but I feel like there is a predisposition that a lot of people have to, to take the cynical bet. Somehow yeah. that seems smarter because either way, there's a payoff. Um, and the payoff, if you said that's bullshit and then it turns out you were right, seems greater to people than the opposite. And also yeah. there's a little bit of you can't prove a negative yeah. popper 
you know, valid hypotheses and stuff like that. <laughs> Plus, you you're, you you get the victory as the most smug person in the room, too. Yeah, so you're nice. generally betting against the cynicism in your business. How yeah. is that like something you can actually take advantage of, or is that something that works in your favor? That that cynicism. Oh, hundred percent. In fact, like we have this thing that our friend came up with, which is the East Coast West Coast arbitrage, which is anything that the people in the East Coast think is ridiculous and a toy, and people on the West Coast think is the next big thing. That's the thing to bet. Mm. And we said you just keep flying back and forth and (laughs) And (laughs) find out what those things are. And then you just invest all your money in that. That really suggests a a question for today. Um, There are some big things happening today that aren't obvious. What kind of energy do you put in to find that? Are there like specialist researchers? Is it just every, uh, every partner's kind of contribution? How much time do you spend looking for what isn't obvious today, but will be obvious in retrospect? Yeah, I think that's, you know, ends up being like half the job is um, trying to understand, like, what is the next big platform? Where are things going? You know, what's going to be the user interaction model after the iPhone? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that's a big open question right now. Like, what's the next platform? What is AI really going to mean? Um, is this whole crypto thing real? These are all like, you know, VR and AR, like at what point? It's hard to imagine uh, 20 years from now it not working. So like how many years from now uh, will that take? Um, and these 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 are the kind of fundamental questions always in the venture capital business, I think. And you might add genomics. You might add yeah. CRISPR. Um, yeah. You might add uh, synthetic biology. It's yeah, three, three of the big new frontiers on the biological front. They yeah. all have that characteristic. CRISPR seems like one to me that is um, going to have really dramatic impact. Obviously, there's big moral debate to be had and, and yeah. policy debate to be had. How do you take something like that and, and try to look for the opportunities? Yeah, so the, the big thing is we default into thinking, okay, this is going to happen. Like, we, we don't spend a lot of time on, like, okay, will this happen? Like, mm. is this is this going to be a thing? Um, we try, in fact, I try, one of the things I try to do at the firm is try very hard to actually kind of prevent us from having the discussion of, like, okay, is, is this going to happen? It's more a question of, like, okay, let's assume it does happen, right? And so that, then there's kind of two really critical questions that follow from that, which is, like, okay, if it does happen, then what, what where does it go? And so the, the financial version of that question is kind of how we call how high is up, which is, like, okay, how big could it get, mm. right? Which is sort of, you know, it's a very interesting question for venture capitalists because it's like if you make an investment in something even if it happens it turns out to be small then it's still not worthwhile and so you're looking for the things that could get really really big and and then you're, you're obviously looking for you know you're then looking for the founders and looking for the specific ideas and applications so you spend a lot of time on that the other thing you think a lot about in this business is timing and so like my observation is basically basically everything happens like my entire history in this industry and at least for 25 years is basically everything that people said was going to happen happened at some point up to and including online pet food delivery like it all it all actually happened right? yeah, all, all, all the things they made jokes about and yeah. all the uh, early 2000s movies yeah. are all actually they're, they're all actually happening but it's like okay when is it going to happen and like is it ready now you know is it going to be on this cycle and then how do you bet this like if it's a, like sometimes these things take three four five cycles right for, for for the founders to really figure things out for the technology to kind of fall into place so it's kind of like what are the exploratory bets how are you kind of vetting whether this stuff is real and then there's this kind of multi-dimensional question of like you know to kind of to your point there's this multi-dimensional question of like okay is the technology ready um, and then you got to kind of cross that with like do you think the market it's ready like do you think people are going to want this and then you might have to cross like in CRISPR you might have to cross with other issues like regulatory issues mm-hmm. like are the regulators going to buy into this um, and so and, and that's where I think you have to kind of explore as you go right which is you have to kind of feel your way through it 
Like it's often not the first company in a category that ends up being the winner, right? This is a, this is a Peter Thielism that we, we quote a lot. It's not the first company that gets all the money. It's the, it's the last company in the market that gets all the money, right? In other words, it's the company that actually takes the market, right? And it ends up actually being the dominant company um, and forecloses the, the the opportunity for there to be new, new startups behind it. And so sometimes that's a pioneer, sometimes it's not. And so you're kind of having this constant discussion about, 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 about timing. Um, and then, you know, at the end of all that, we kind of try to park that to a certain extent and just start talking to entrepreneurs and, you know, figure out, you know, who is the person who's got this, the most decoded, you know, how much time and effort has that person put into it? How qualified are they to pursue this? You know, what's, what's their personality and can they build a company around it? Yeah, that's what I was going to, I was going to uh, actually go right there. Um, because knowing you, as I do, I can't imagine it's ever, we have a thesis that this thing is going to work out. Now we're going to look for the entrepreneurs who are doing this thing. It's much more going to be, you have the confluence of who you're meeting, who you get to talk to, what, what people are up to, and these background theses that that give you the opportunities. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And actually, I mean, I think for a while, it was always <laughs> it like started with the entrepreneur um, in, in the early days of it, just because there were only the two of us and we couldn't cover all the spaces and enough depth to do it any other way. Um, but, you know, the other thing kind of related to that is the platforms that kind of we think are getting proximate from a timing standpoint are the ones where like the smartest entrepreneurs are all uh, working. So if we see 20 genius entrepreneurs all working on crypto, that makes us pay attention, for example. So Mark, you've talked about uh, five-year cycles in tech. Is that is that something that um, you think is a good way to imagine what's going on or to, to picture it in so, some context? So I would say there's there's two big there's two big sites. It's, it's hard to, you know, this stuff is just these are just general frameworks. And so that you know they they vary a lot in practice. But the big the two big general concepts. And so like I would say one is the big gener the big technology changes, like the ones we've been talking about, like they're 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 generational changes, like they're quite literally they're human generational changes. Mm -hmm. like, so it's like the, the typical cycle in those is like 25 years. And the reason literally is because a lot of the time you just the, the people who are in positions of power and decision and influence when the new thing comes out, they just will not accept it. They won't accept it. They won't adapt to it. They won't recalibrate to it. And, and fundamentally, they need to age out of the cohort that has the power, right? Purchasing authority and you know, all the decision-making authority and all, all these other things. And so, they, they, and then you need a new generation that like takes this stuff seriously because they grew up with it, right? And you need yeah. them to age into the cohort, right? And so it's like, it's literally a, a generational turnover. And so you see these, and that's why you get these things. You'll, you'll see these, the, you know, some of these new things, they'll grow for 25 years. And I'm convinced like a big part of it is just simply that, that generational effect. So that's the good news. It's like when they work, you can have literally decades of growth um, the, off of, you know, enormous skepticism uh, from day one. Um, you know, the bad news is, as, as you're well aware as a founder, no individual company gets 25 years, right, to prove something, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> In fact, something well uh, short of that, let's say. And so, like, our, our basic mental model is um, a, co a company on average gets maybe five years to prove something, to prove the hypothesis. Like, and you can kind of, like, if you're a top-end founder and you're super credible, you could probably raise the seed rounds, you know, Series A, Series B. You can get yourself five years of runway. You can get, you know, engineers to, to, to some of people to sign up for that and you can prove it or not. But after five years, if it's not working, like you, you start to have a problem and, and, or, or I should say you have two problems. One is you start to have a morale, a morale issue where people start to lose faith and they, they spin off and go do other things. You can also end up with an architecture issue, right? Which is like, even if you're right, even if it starts to happen, you're built on the, on the, on the prior architecture. Right. And so, you know, imagine being a mobile developer that started in, you know, 2002, right. And even if they were still around when the iPhone came out, you know, they'd built their entire, you know, system on brew and, you know, Java and all these technologies that were now archaic. And so, so, so you kind of have this, this, this kind of aging in place thing that happens. Um, and so each company kind of has a five-year shot. So then what happens, there is, are exceptions. Yes. There are particular founders who can, who can, who can get through this, but yeah. it, it does tend to be the exception. 
And so, um, and, but, but then you think about it, then there's sort of the psychological thing that happens as a consequence, which is if the founder starts the company in the first cycle, runs for five years and it doesn't prove the hypothesis, that founder usually ends up so bitter mm-hmm. um, about the whole experience that they become cynical about that category for the rest of their lives. Right. Right. And then, and then somebody else in sort of, gen, you know, cycle two, generation two, three, four does figure it out. And like, man, you know, that, and by the way, I'm, I'm speaking out also myself out of experience, like talk about upset. The fact that you couldn't get it to work and this other person did, it's just like absolutely maddening. And that's just human nature. The part of it that really bites the VCs is the VCs do that too. Mm-hmm. Um, if you as a VC make a bet and go on a board and you're in the board meetings for five years and it doesn't work and the company shuts down and then a new kid shows up, you know, three weeks later um, and says, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't we do that? Right. And of course, what really makes you frustrated as a VC is that kid half the time isn't even aware of the previous failed experiments because like yeah. they literally weren't paying attention. Right. And so what, what happens is actually the VCs will free, it's actually, it's like the VCs will actually freeze, them, freeze themselves out. And so, and it'll be VCs who are much more naive and much less aware of the previous failures that will actually make the bet. And so that puts you in this very weird spot if you think about being a VC or running a venture capital firm, which is you would like to say that the person who knows the most about the domain is the person who should make the investment decision. But it may also be the case the person who knows the most about the domain has the most scar tissue and has the most followed up psychology. And so a big part, exactly to, to, to your comment, like a big, a big part of this job, just like being a founder, is like you have to suppress your natural instincts to get bitter and resentful and envious and upset. And it goes to even a more even a more fundamental question is like, can you learn lessons, right? Like, what what do you learn? Like in this business, what do you learn from a failure? And maybe the answer is you should learn a lot from a failure because like it's those are all hard won lessons. And maybe the answer is you should learn absolutely nothing. Maybe all the lessons are wrong. So, yeah, sometimes the lesson is just that didn't work. Yeah, that's something that we I spent a lot of time trying to to um, to convince people on the on the team of that uh, it's the Wright brothers or Thomas Edison. It's just every day. What's the best idea we got? That didn't work. All right, what's the next best idea we got? And the 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 characterization of celebrating failure sometimes misleads people to to characterize that as a failure. Because if this plane didn't yeah. fly, or this light bulb didn't light up, or it blew up, or whatever, is right. that a failure? Or is that just the process of getting to the light yeah. bulb that works, or the airplane that flies? Yeah, yeah. Edison yeah. tried three thousand compounds, I think, for the light bulb. Yeah, before he figured out the filament. That yeah. is a level of persistence I would like to hire. So, Mark, you just mentioned a little bit of like control over your own emotions or your reactions, the cynicism, uh, bad. That's something that you talked a lot about in the hard thing about hard things, just like yeah. the power to overcome to what, I mean, obviously you've seen a lot of this, you've experienced it yourself. Um, to what degree do you think you've been helpful? And let me just say, you have been helpful to me personally in, in helping entrepreneurs through some of that, whether it's the overwhelming emotional reaction to a bunch of good stuff happening or a bunch of bad stuff happening. Yeah, no, so I think, I mean, that that's probably the the number one kind of consistent thing that I get back on that book is like, you know, what I'm feeling is so intense and there's nobody to talk to about it. And then the book kind of goes like, this is what it feels like. This is what it looks like. And I think that just that, just knowing that you're not the stupidest entrepreneur of all times is like really valuable. Um, and it's something that I always wish that I had. It's a lot of the reason I wrote the book because I, I used to go around, you know, and I, you know, and I, and I was like in the, the kind of horrible period 2001 and I would talk to other founders and I'd be like, you know, how's it going? And they'd be like, it's amazing. Like, I can't, <laughs> this is the greatest experience of my life. And I'd just be like, wow, I am like the stupidest motherfucker of all times. Like, cause my business is in horrible trouble. And and it just seems so bad. But then like, you know, as because I've lived long enough to see like most of those guys went bankrupt. So they were all going through what I was going through. They just like, nobody would tell each other because it's so embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, so it was, you know, one of those 
those kinds of things. But it's been, you know, it's been a great help to me in the work because when I sit down with an entrepreneur, they go, okay, yeah, I know, you know what I'm talking about. So we can talk about the real like horrible shit um, and not just, you know, the happy stuff. I feel like there's an obligatory question here is, uh, to talk about the, the things that you guys tried that didn't work um, and, and the failures. But before we get there, just on the, on the way, there's a bunch of things that obviously did work. So building up a bunch of capabilities uh, in the firm and, and in the partnership was something that is now pretty widely emulated, like having those services that the, that the companies can call on, mm-hmm. being a little bit more uh, stage agnostic and even like industry technology vertical agnostic has been something that that's worked out really well. Um, when you look back before we get to the failure question, what do you think the the best decisions you made are when in the way that you set up the firm? Yeah. So it's a great question. I think, you know, at, at the core, I think um, the, just this belief that a venture capital firm has got to be able to help the technical founder grow into a CEO. is just so, hmm. You know, in retrospect, that turned out to be profound and and just differentiating and important. And and it really is the work. So when we think about what do we do and why are we here, that's it. Uh, And then kind of backing that up, the thing that helped us the most is just taking what Michael Ovitz had done at CAA. And um, that jump-started us. I mean, we probably saved five years by copying his model. So that, uh, and I can't even believe how well it worked. (laughs) Like, Every aspect of it worked. So, you know, those are probably the, the two things. What was it from Michael Lovitz that you were copying? He has since written the book. Um, and so there's yeah, a great he book. He finally that, revealed some of it. Some, <laughs> some, of, some of it's in the book. Not all of it's in the book. Um, but it's, the book is called Who is Michael Lovitz? Um, and I, I, we, it's a highly entertaining book. And we, we, we recommend it. I mean, it's actually really funny. He kind of sat down and described the whole thing. And it basically was this idea of, you know, we're not just going to be a collection of individuals. We're going to be an actual true team. And then it's not just going to be the principles. It's going to be an entire system, right? It's going to be an entire operating platform, an entire entire infrastructure. It's going to be professionals across all these different domains. Um, and, you know, we're going to build this enduring long-run network that's going to, you know, just it's just going to constantly compound year after year and, and build more and more value. And then the next client comes along or the next, you know, founder comes along and we, they can plug into this entire system, you know, that's been built, in, you know, and we've been building the system now for a decade. And so, you know, a new founder who works with us today, like they're, they're walking into a, basically a system that's been built for a decade. So then he said, basically what happens is then it's compounding advantage, which is every year that goes by, you just get more and more differentiation off of the status quo. He was competing at the time with William Morris, which was this huge talent agency. And it's like, well, why wouldn't they just copy you? And he's like, well, they'd have to vote themselves big salary cuts, right? Like they're paying themselves all the money right now, right? And so they, to, to go hire, you know, 100 people to go do the stuff that we're doing, they'd have to like, they'd have to free up that money from something. So they'd have to vote themselves giant salary cuts. And he's like, they don't like each other. Like they don't get along to start with. And so imagine getting into the room and they've all got like, you know, they're like very successful people. They've all got very high personal burn rates, right? They've got all kinds of hobbies. You know, they've got vineyards and yachts and all this stuff. And so, um, you know, they're going to now decide to give themselves an 80% pay cut, right? To compete with the startup, like no chance. Um, and so anyway, that, that was his explanation. <laughs> yeah, that's been a long lasting advantage, I think. For yeah. Us, yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, that, that continues. Cause it actually turns out it, it, it didn't just happen in the talent agency business. It, what I discovered doing more research after that was that was also exactly what happened in, for law firms. It's exactly what happened to management consulting firms. It's what happened to ad agencies, accounting firms, and then also investment banks, private equity firms, hedge funds. All these other industries have gone through this transformation. They basically, they professionalized and up-leveled. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just happens that the venture industry is doing that now. And in fact, I think at this stage, like it's, it's beyond just us. Right. There's something else there that I actually hadn't really realized, but um, maybe it was implicit the whole time, is CA's investment was to make the, the people they're representing more successful. Smart idea, given that you got points on, on their success. 
there's a little bit of the same thing because you can make a, an investment decision that is just like, I'm going to buy some copper futures or oil or something like that. And it, I can't do anything about to make oil more valuable for people or copper more valuable. I invest in the startup and there's a ton of stuff I can do. I have my connections and I know that, you know, personally I benefited from being able to call on both of you from, um, John O'Farrell, who joined our board from Margaret, uh, from Jeff Stump on recruiting, from the whole team running the EBCs. I mean, there's more than I, than I can mention here. Um, and I think that it has, I don't know what the ROI for you is on that, um, on top of the dollars that you put in, but I I would say it's probably 70% of the value to us and 70% of the value created came from that additional support beyond just the money. Yeah, and, and there's also this little knock-on effect, uh, which you appreciate, I'm sure, which is part of the trouble with, um, you know, a, an inventor becoming a CEO is you just don't feel like a CEO. You don't know the people who CEOs know. You don't know how to do the things CEOs know how to do. And so a lot of what you get out of the firm is, no, I'm a CEO. Like if I need to know how to do it, I'll call Margaret. Like, you know, I can do that. I can step up. And so like, that's a lot of what it conveys at the end of the day is just like that confidence, which is Often that that little difference between being able to stay in the job and having to <laughs> raise your hand and tap out. All right, so I I, uh, I promised that I was going to ask about um, any dumb decisions, mistakes, failures along the way. What do you got? Oh, uh, we haven't made any. I don't really know why you, why you would even <laughs> ask that question. There's obviously nothing to talk. Um, so we have a very specific um, philosophy on that, and the the book I'd really recommend. We've we're lucky enough to have her in the podcast a while ago. So Annie Duke wrote a book called Thinking in Bets. Uh, where she talks about basically what is the nature of a mistake um, in a probabilistic domain, you know, with uncertainty of outcome. And she uses the term in the book uh, resulting. Um, it's basically the process of looking at a bet that was made in a probabilistic domain that did not, did not pan out um, and then concluding that that was a mistake as compared to a bet that didn't pan out. And so basically what she says in the book, she says in the book is basically resulting is the root of all evil if you're if you're in, in a probabilistic business because you will learn the wrong lessons and you'll torture yourself mentally to death by doing that. And so she says the thing to do is basically to very clearly separate in your own mind process and outcome, right? So you're in a probabilistic domain. You don't know the outcome of any particular bet ahead of time. Um, and so you need to design the best possible process to generate the best possible set of outcomes over time. Um, and then basically when things go quote unquote wrong, you don't second guess the outcome, you go back and you just make sure the process was as, as good as it, as it could have been. Um, and so, you know, from the outside, the mistakes a venture firm makes are always like, well, what's the investment that you didn't make that worked or the investment that you made that didn't work? Inside the firm, what we try to do is say, okay, what have we done well in our process and how can, how can we improve our process? You know, that's a much more boring topic to talk about because it has to do with things like meeting structure and memo, you know, documents and, you know, research and due diligence and all these topics. Um, but that, that, that is the actual answer to the question, which is, um, you know, when we started with, a rel as Ben said, we, we started with a relatively lightweight process on investments because it was just Ben and me. And, 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 um, and then over the time, we've, we've, we've evolved to a much more rigorous uh, process. Uh, today, we do a lot more work on the investments than we used to. And then, the, and then the other side of that is to try to keep all that work from preventing us from making the controversial investments. You know, Getting so people that, to that, that position, and I, I wish I could remember who gave me this analogy, but the, um, if you got super drunk and then you drove home and you didn't have a crash, right. it's not that that was a good decision. <laughs> yeah, right. the, the result was good. And, and we really, it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to build structures inside the company to celebrate. That was a great idea to change the homepage so that whatever. And it turned out that it was wrong, but you still get a bonus. You get a bonus, you get a promotion, you get you yeah. know, recognition, um, even though it didn't have the result, because people do get super result fixated. Yeah, that's a, you know, Bezos has a real good thing where he says, we, we rate people on the inputs, not the outputs. Right. 
One of the last questions I wanted to get to is the nature of the entrepreneurs. Now that it's been long enough, you've seen some some two-time, three-time entrepreneurs and you've backed some of them. Yeah. Um, what kind of difference do you see between that the, the, the first time and the second time? So for top-end venture, basically the, the rule is if you're a first-time founder, to get funded by a top-end venture firm as a first-time founder, you have to have something working. Right. You have to have a product. You have to some, have some level of product market fit. You know, Google or, Google.com already existed. Facebook already existed. You know, right. been a, Airbnb already existed when they, when they raised money. So, so that's the general pattern. And then the question of the first-time founders is, do they know, do they know what they're doing, right? Can they mm-hmm. can they then do the job of being a founder CEO of a, of a scaling company? Um, and some can and some can't. The second-time founders are like a huge relief to deal with on the one hand because it's like, okay, they've been through it before. Now they know what they're doing, right? They've got some experience and some gray hair and some, um, you know, some, some operational experience. The problem with the second-time founders, they can raise money before they have something working, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's this question of like, okay, what's the idea? And then we talk a lot about like, is it an, or is it an organic idea or is it like a synthetic idea? Was the process, I have a great idea, therefore I'm going to start a second company? Or was the process, I want to start a second company and therefore I have to go come up with an idea? And what you often find is they want to start a second company so badly that they come up with basically a, a, a synthetic, a, a fragmentary idea, a partial idea. It's a conceptually interesting idea, but with nothing underneath it. Mm-hmm. And we have this uh, other concept we use called the idea maze, which basically is the process that a founder uses to figure out what the actual idea is, which is like a hundred step process to work your way through all the different permutations of the idea before you actually finally figure out the real thing. And the second time founders often just haven't gone through the idea maze. But it's really bizarre as a VC because it's like, here's this founder who you love and like they've they're showed incredible persistence in the last company and like you so badly want to work with them again and you can just tell like for the, the idea has almost become interchangeable right and it's just like that's a super bad sign and so that's what tortures you on those yeah from the entrepreneur side i can tell you having a whole bunch of money does take away a very critical forcing function which is like i'm about to run out of money i better figure this out <laughs> yeah, so we yeah, i had to yep. o- overcorrect for that yes right, what's the job yeah. of the founder is the job yeah, of the no, founder the to pressure figure, yeah. right is the job of the founder to figure out the product figure out the market and get to get the idea nailed or is the job of the founder to staff an executive team and an employee base right and those are two like they're they're overlapping responsibilities but yep. there's a lot the of first one turns out to be a lot more important <laughs> yeah yeah it's like the startups where it's like they're doing all the outward facing things involved in being a startup mm-hmm. but like there's nothing there well you know and you always kind of know it because the founding team is all vice presidents and no engineers or something like that. It's just like, okay, well, what are you doing? <laughs> you can't execute your way through like no ideas. 10 people in the company, they'll have a chairman, they'll have a CEO, they'll have a COO, they'll have a president, they'll have a VP of sales, a VP of marketing, and a VP of engineering. Yeah, that's, no, uh, that's not a good. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of a pet peeve for me too. So the first time that I met Ben, it was with Mark and it was at the Creamery in, in Palo Alto. And, oh, yeah. Um, I think you were about probably about six months away from starting mm-hmm. the fund. I never would have predicted how things would have turned out. Did you predict how things would have turned out? You know, no. I think we dreamed that uh, we would kind of get to where we got to, but it, it was a much longer time frame on the dream. I mean, things worked out way, way better than than I think either of us set out and expected. And, you know, we had a lot of good luck along the way and then a lot of you know, great help from a lot of people, um, you know, people like actually starting with like people like Jim Breyer, who kind of taught us what it meant to like create an LP base and how to think about investors and those kinds of things. And then, you know, we ended up getting like very lucky on the hiring. I think our first hire was Scott Cooper, who mm-hmm. we probably kind of built the firm without. And then, you know, our first consultant was Margaret, uh, and, uh, you know, there's no way we would have like pulled off the marketing thing without her. So a lot of, a lot of really great luck and a lot of really great help. 
Oh, and Andy Ratcliffe, yeah, he helped us understand what venture, venture capital, capital was. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out neither be. of us had any experience. <laughs> then obviously all the partners who've joined us since, so about 150, 150 people now who, but by definition, numerically, they get almost all the credit. So one thing I definitely want to get to is the transition from a VC firm to a financial advisor firm, whatever that <laughs> yeah. means. And you were a little bit iconoclastic um, and different from the beginning. This also seems, we'll see, looking back, it's iconoclastic, but definitely different. What was the idea there? Yeah, so, you know, kind of the thing that catalyzed it was actually crypto. There, there, there's a rule that exempts VCs from having to do a bunch of kind of regulatory compliance stuff. And um, part of the thing that keeps you as a VC is you can't invest more than 20% of your funds in things that aren't like uh, primary equity investments. So crypto mm. would fall into that category, secondary, so forth. And look, we believe crypto is going to be important. Now, there's a lot of VCs who do, who won't take the step that we did to become regulated in the way that we have. But, you know, like this is kind of another advantage from our background is we're not afraid of governance or regulation or these kinds of things. And that, you know, it's something that we understand pretty well from being a public company. We've done it before. And it opens up a lot of opportunities that we can now think about uh, because, you know, we're in another category. Yeah, so... This changed the, the categorization and then the regulatory environment, but you're still a VC firm. Yes. Yeah. No, we, we still are in the exact same business we always were. Mark, I got to also do TV shows that you recommend because you yeah. are a, a source uh, of um, excellent viewing. For there you. we go. Good. All right. Well, I'll start. Well, so I, I, can't, I can't help myself. Deadwood is the, the the best TV show of all time, and it's actually very relevant for founders. It's it's basically it's the story of the American frontier, mm-hmm. in with through kind of a modern lens, um, and it's just astonishingly high quality. And it's 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 basically the creation of a city. It's basically the creation of a city, and ultimately the creation of a state. The state of North North Dakota, and it is you know in the face of just like you know horrifying uh, obstacles. You know, and by the way, you know many ethical issues along the way and everything else. Yeah, if you think starting a tech company is hard, you want to watch a couple seasons of Deadwood. It'll put you in the right frame of mind. Deadwood and then the, the movie that it got canceled. It was a decade ago, and it got canceled after three seasons, and it really should not have been. Um, and so they 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 did a very rare thing. They went back ten years, and all these all the people in the, in the movie became huge stars afterwards in the in the show. So they got them all back and made the uh, the fourth season into a movie. Wow! All right, can't wait to see it. Yeah. We'll give you two books if you want. Two books. Yeah, two books, give, two me, books. give me two books. Right. Give me five books. Favorite two books of the year. Yeah. Uh, book number one, Why History is Always Wrong, uh, written by a historian. And it is basically, um, if you've read Nassim Taleb, he talks about something called the narrative fallacy, which basically is, okay, why did something happen? And then there's some story as to why it happened. And then it, it usually turns out, like, if you talk to the principals involved, it wasn't that story at all. Yeah. It was something much more complex. Um, and so this is like the next level of that theory that basically says all of recorded history is the narrative fallacy. Um, and so everything that we think we understand about why the American Revolution happened or why Rome fell, right, or why Christianity emerged, or like any of these stories that we, all the, any of these things that we, and we, you know, teach, you know, you know take, you know, 12 years of history class in, in school and all this stuff, like it's all wrong. Like it, it's worse than wrong um, because it's not like it could be corrected. Yeah. You couldn't actually make a bunch of edits to the, to, to, to the book and make it correct. You can't do that at all. And the reason why it's, it's, it's worse than wrong and you, you can't ever get it right is because reality is so complicated. Right. Reality is a complex adaptive system when you've got human agents involved in everything. And so you've got, you know, when anything big that happens, you've got thousands or millions of people who are making all kinds of random decisions every day for all kinds of random reasons. And it just happens that things result in a certain way. Is it wrong in the same way to think that 
it didn't rain because God was mad or it did rain because we performed the ritual in the right way, like puts a, some agency into a system that there isn't anyone making decisions. It's yeah. just the emergency. And in reality, the, yeah, exactly. In reality, the weather system, I mean, you know, this is after 100 years of meteorological science and they still can't predict if it's going to rain tomorrow. And it's because the atmospheric system is a, is a complex adaptive system and it's too complicated to, mo to model. And just like, and you can keep throwing supercomputers at it and it's still too complicated to model. So, and by the way, it's the same thing, the human body, like we don't, it's actually, we think about this a lot in the bio fund. It's like, we don't understand, like we don't even, there's not even settled nutritional science. Like we still don't know. Like there's still, there's now a whole new category of revision of science now questioning this whole, the whole protein fat, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the whole protein fat thesis. And, and so like, it's, it's the example he uses in the book of the fall of Rome is like the, you know, the single most studied kind of historical story is like the rise and fall of Rome. And it's like, and basically what happens is like, uh, if, if like a science is working properly, you converge on the correct answer. Like you converge on Newton's laws, you converge on quantum mechanics or something like that. He's like, the problem in history um, is that the more time goes past, the more explanations they come up with, the more new explanations they come up with. And there's like, historians have documented there's like 250 now different causes for the fall of Rome, Right. And and so like it, it just it, it leaves you with nothing. And so it's 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 a it's a disconcerting theory because it basically says getting a handle on cause and effect in the world is impossible. It's a very convenient theory because it means you can just ignore history. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. saves you a lot of time. It saves you a lot of time. Um, and then it's an inspiring story uh, or theory I find because it's like okay things can change. Like nothing is actually carved in stone. Like not even a little bit. Yeah. And who knows what's going to be the next person who's going to make the decision that's going to cause everything to go one way or the other. And that could be you. Um, and so I find that inspiring. And then the other book I, 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 I love to tell people about is David Goggins, um, who's a, uh, the only guy in history. He's a triple qualified as a Navy SEAL and Army Ranger and what's called an Air Force uh, Tactical Air Controller, uh, which is a uh, special forces unit of the Air Force. So triple qualified special forces. Um, uh, he wrote a book called Can't Hurt Me. Um, and it is one of the most amazing stories that anybody has ever written. His, his story is really amazing. Uh, he's one of the only African-American Navy SEALs uh, in history. And, you know, just this man of just incredible accomplishments, both inside and outside the military. And it's the book, like if Ben's book is about like the struggle in business, like David's book is about the struggle in life. Hmm. Um, and so anytime anybody feels mopey um, <laughs> about what's happening in their startup or in their life, this is the book to read to kind of reset all the expectations. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, it was a pleasure and uh, an honor to be able to do this with you. All right, Stuart, no, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you, Stuart.